Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. I'll read it, I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll jump right on in. This is yet another issue that's now surfacing in the church in Corinth want Paul to kind of weigh in on this matter that is uh, disrupting their unity. Chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, We do know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called lowercase gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many lowercase gods and many lowercase lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through their former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, and we are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do, but brothers and sisters, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother or sister stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother or sister stumble. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and my prayer, uh, Lord, for us all week is that we would not just know truth, and have good theology in our minds, but that we would be empowered by your spirit for a lived theology of love. And so, Lord, uh, use the words and the gifts of your servant for your own glory and uh, forgive me my sins and the sins of your people. Soften our hearts that we might receive with meekness and humility the implanted word for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we are in chapter 8, and we'll finish this entire chapter this morning. And if you are keeping track with the length of 1 Corinthians, you know that there are 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians, which means that after today, we are halfway through. We started back in August, and Lord willing, we'll finish it by the summer. And halfway points are really good moments to think about where we've been and where we're going. This is a not-so-good church. They were suing one another. They had divisions and dissensions in the church. 
There was a sexual immorality not even tolerated by the pagans in Corinth, which says something. They were discontent in their marriages with their spouses. They were discontent in their singleness. That some who were Jews wanted to have the marks of circumcision removed and some who had not been circumcised were tempted to be circumcised. And I wish I could tell you that it gets better. It don't get better. Like chapter after chapter after chapter, it's always something with this church. And churches like Thessalonica, they turn from idols to serve the true and living God. And we're going to see in a couple weeks in Corinth, they didn't turn from idols, they toyed with them. And churches like the Philippian church or the church in Colossae, they, they loved one another. And we're going to see this morning that the church of Corinth is one of the most loveless group of Christians you might ever find. And I find myself rooting for them, like, come on, like, get it together, get it together, right? And then I'm like, you know what? This is us. They're just like us. They're a not-so-good church who serves a great God, who promises to meet them and change them and challenge them and sanctify them because of the grace that is theirs in Jesus. And this is good news if you're an unhealthy Christian. If you are in an unhealthy church, the good news is that we serve a good God. And what he's going to do week in and week out is challenge us. He's going to give us his grace and he's going to enable us to live a different way. And this morning, we got another problem. And I almost entitled the sermon, How Not to Kill Your Church. But I entitled it Learning to Love in an Unloving World because they were letting the loveless nature of the world shape their community. In chapter 8, if they were in a war, the Corinthians would be guilty of death by friendly fire. You know what that is? It's when you're in a war and instead of fighting the enemy, you kill your own troops. And that's what they were doing. If you notice the end of the passage, notice the end of chapter 8, Paul says, thus sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience. Verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother or sister stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother and sister stumble. This type of lovelessness is not for the world, right? They're loveless of the world in chapter 10. But what Paul is calling out this morning is the biggest enemy to the church may not be Satan and it may not be the world. It actually may be people in your own fellowship. And that hurts, right? And so notice the language that Paul uses to describe what's going on, and it's some of his most graphic vocabulary. Notice what he says in verse 12. He uses this language of wounding, thus sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience. You sin against Jesus. Paul knows very well what it's like to persecute the church And then for Jesus to come to him and say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Jesus so identifies with the church, even the weak, that if you harm the weak, you're harming the Messiah. But the word for wound that you see right here, it's the same word used in Matthew to describe what they did to Jesus when they put the crown of thorns on him, when they mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spit on him and took the reed and they wounded him on the head and they led him away to crucify him. And so what Paul is actually saying is, whatever is happening in chapter 8, it is not a small thing. You are actually harming Jesus and you're wounding the body in the same way that Jesus was wounded. Look at verse 11. By your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed. Look at verse 9 and verse 13. It's this repetitive language of causing one to stumble. Take care that this right of yours does not become a stumbling block for the weak. And here's the image. The image is in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians 10, he's going to say, flee idolatry. And so the image here is that the weak Christian, is ru they're running. They're running from sexual immorality. They're running from idolatry. And their eyes are fixed on Jesus, the perfecter and author of their faith. And they're fighting the fight and running the race. And guess who trips them up? It's not the enemy. It's another brother and sister who proclaims the name of Jesus. That is how Paul would have us view whatever is happening in this passage. Well, what's happening? The ones that they should have loved most deeply and helped, they were hurting. And this is betrayal of the highest order. And this is not here for us to merely witness it. It's here as a warning to us all to be mindful of your words, to be mindful of what you post, to be mindful of what you tweet, to be mindful of what you wear, to be mindful of how you live. It's a warning. And what type of Christian will you be? One who has a wake of wounded, weak, stumbling believers on the ground grasping for life? Or will you be the type of believer who learns to love and consider others being patient with them and learn the joy of dying that others might live? So we're going to look at this passage under this heading, right? And this is purely for you to remember. I want, I want you to be able to, to remember what we're talking, not necessarily what I say, like, but just I want you to be able to remember. And so here's, we're going to do a countdown. Three, two, one, all right? So the points are going to be three, two, one. So when you're at your dinner table, the points will be what? Three, two, one. All right, you got me. Three terms to consider. That's the first point. Three terms to consider. So when I enrolled in seminary in 2004, I was fresh out of working for General Electric. And we made big old gas turbines that powered cruise ships and military engines and commercial engines. And being an engineer, like being in that world for four or five years, 
That was my vocabulary. I knew what shot peening was, right? I knew what laser etching was. I knew what metallurgy meant. I knew what pitting and torque and CNC grinding and milling. I knew what shot peening and platinum coating was and lead times. Like, like that was the vocabulary. I was at home. And then you sort of step into seminary. Guess what? They're not using those words. There are languages I got to learn that I didn't even know existed. And the hardest part about seminary for me, I didn't have a Bible degree. I was kind of a new Christian. And so I would be in classes and my professors would use all of these words. And I'm just like, what does that mean? And so I had to look everything up and and sort of develop this theological vocabulary. Right. When you look at first Corinthians eight, I don't want any of you to be confused. And so we got to define some terms that are important to understanding the practice, right? So the first word to consider is what's an idol? This is clearly about idols. Food has been offered to idol. What's an idol? And some of your minds think about American Idol, and that ain't it. So don't don't go there. You got to go back to the Bible, to Exodus chapter 20. One of, the, one of the Ten Commandments, the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved idol or a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And so what, what, what God is saying there is an idol is something fashioned with human hands. And notice, what, what, notice the, the scope of it. God says, look, I don't want you to make nothing after nothing that's under the earth, on the earth, or above the earth. And, and that means nothing at the bottom and nothing at the top and nothing in the middle. Don't fashion anything after anything and then give your loyalty to it and bow down to it and worship, right? So that's what an idol is. John Piper goes on to say that an idol is anything that we come to rely on for some blessing, some help, some guidance in the place of a wholehearted reliance upon the true and living God. He goes on to say, this covers your rabbit foot, a picture of a saint on your wall, a relic from some sacred shrine sitting on your mantle, images taken from the Hindu or Buddhist temples, or the golden calf that Aaron made when Moses was on a mountain. And Corinth was a city full of idols. They worship all kinds of gods. And these gods had temples. And people had replicas of these little idols in their homes. And they appeased the gods in their homes. But occasionally you had to come and feast together and worship together. And it would involve a sacrifice, a, 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 a meat sacrifice. And you would have a communal meal together celebrating your allegiance to this idol. And then some of the food that was left over would show up at Piggly Wiggly for the pick five, right? (laughs) And you can go get you some chicken or some peacock or whatever they ate. I don't know what they ate, right? (laughs) Or you go to Tuesday Chicken Special at Fresh Market, right? But the meat that was in the temple was in the market. And the question becomes, what is it? 
Is it clean? Is it pure? Hours ago, it was being offered to an idol. But is it clean right now? That's an idol. We good there? Idol? Freedom is another light word. Freedom is essential to understanding the gospel. This too goes back to Exodus. Israel, were, they were in bondage as a people. They were slaves under Pharaoh. And they could not go out and worship. And the Lord says, let my people go, that they may come out of bondage and worship me. And Pharaoh would not let them go. And so the Lord raised up Moses, who was a deliverer, to go in there and to overthrow Pharaoh and to overthrow their gods, to march them out of bondage into freedom. And so we know that someone greater than Moses has come and his name is Jesus. And we were in a bondage much harder than the bondage under an earthly ruler. We were in bondage to our sin. We were slaves to our sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then in steps Jesus to bring us out of darkness into his light. And we are now free. We are new. We are his in the Lord. Freedom. But that's not the freedom that Paul has in mind here. He has a lowercase freedom in mind here. Now notice, look at it. It's in verse 9 of chapter 8. Paul says, but take care that this right of yours. All right, so underline right. Now turn over to chapter 9, and then Paul's going to keep going on about these rights. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? The right to take a wife, right? The right to get a, a fruit of our labors. He's going on and on about his rights. So what are these rights? These are what theologians would consider adiaphora or indifferent things, these liberties and freedoms that God now gives you in the gospel to decision make. Here's what R.C. Sproul says. We are given freedom to make certain choices that are not commanded or forbidden in Scripture. As much as you want it to be, the Bible does not tell you what color carpet to put in your house. Right? It doesn't tell you how many kids to have. It doesn't tell you to drink Coke or Pepsi or Mountain Dew. And you get freedom for how you obey the commands of the Lord. The Lord says, love your neighbor. What does loving your neighbor look like? it's going to look differently from person to person, right? You might love your neighbor by being an excellent cook and somebody else burns food up and that is not what they can do. So you have freedom in Jesus to obey the commands in such a way that aligns with how God uniquely made you. You're free. So he's talking about these things that are adiaphora. God doesn't say you can't drink alcohol or can. He gives warnings around it. Republican and Democrat is not in the Bible. He doesn't tell you how to vote. Use your own wisdom. He doesn't say you must eat meat or you must live in this neighborhood or you must educate your children this way. Here's the thing. We all have a, 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 a lot of things where God says you're free. You are free to make these decisions. Freedom, we're good? Good. Conscience, that's the third word. It comes up over and over and over again in this passage. It'll come up again in chapter 10. 
One scholar says, Paul sees the conscience as an internal compass telling each person what is right and what is wrong, but the human conscience, like a compass, is a sensitive instrument. It can easily malfunction. It can get trapped in magnetic fields that pull it off of course. It can allow itself to be set in a particular pattern even though it's inappropriate. It often can't tell the difference between a social custom, the way things are done in this town, this country, this college, this family, and actual issues of right and wrong. Joe Carter goes on to say that it can be a trustworthy guide when it is informed and ruled by God. It also bears witness to our value system, but it can be suppressed and tainted by sin and become seared and totally unreliable. So it's that internal, no, that's wrong. Okay, that's right. So here's an example of conscience. When we got married, leading up to our um, reception, we, my wife and I, started to argue. And it wasn't about if I love her. It wasn't about money and how much the wedding was called. It wasn't about any of that. It was about if we would serenade her at the wedding. And so I'm a member of Kappa Alpha Psi. It's a black Greek letter fraternity. And we twirl canes and we wear bow ties, right? That was kind of the, 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 the reputation on campus. My wife's a member of Delta Sigma Theta. It's a Black sorority. And in both of our organizations, you serenade the bride on the wedding. And so imagine a room full of noobs holding hands, singing the Kappa Sweetheart song with my wife in her wedding dress in the middle. That's what you do. And then the Deltas, they get around her and walk and they sing. And so we're arguing over if we're going to let the Kappa serenade her and if we're going to let the Delta serenade her. And so at, at our wedding, I didn't want our guys to serenade my wife. I, my, why? Here, here's why. One, they were some hoodlums, right? So just. <laughs> and we all were like, I, I was a part of that. And so here, here's the thing that, that, that stayed on my heart, that, that tormented my soul. You see, we used to throw parties on Friday nights. And we used to buy all the liquor and mix it up in big coolers. And we would give it away illegally to underage people at the party. And we would have to go into this room and basically remove everything out of the room the table up front, all the chairs, and we would throw a party. And then at three o'clock in the morning, we'd have to stay behind and set the room back up for the people who got the building on Sunday. And it was a church. So a church plant was using the building that we threw parties in on Friday night. And I had to take crosses off of the wall. And we had to pick up programs that had any residue that this is a church. And we partied. And then we put it back together like it was a church. And this is where we threw parties. And so sitting around my wife singing the Kappa song, it was not just a song for me. 
It reminded me of my idolatry. It reminded me of the way that I used to live and the person I used to be. And my conscience wouldn't let me do it. And she had freedom. They sang to her. And I told all my guys, sit down, we're not singing. You see how the conscience works? Now, we good on idols? Yes. Freedom? Yes. Conscience? Yes. Now, two ways to live. There are really only two ways to live. It's what you see in 1 Corinthians 8, and it's what you see in 1 Corinthians 9. You have their way, and then you have Paul, who talks about his rights. He says, don't I have the right to take a wife? Don't I have the right to eat and and get money from y'all because of my labors? Don't I have these rights? And then Paul's going to say, but I don't make use of any of the rights. You have him who is choosing the way of love, and you have them In this chapter, they're loveless. Let me show you. And there's the only two ways to live. There's tension in this chapter, and it's between the weak brothers. And you would think that Paul's going to call the other party the strong, but the strong is not in this chapter at all. You know who he calls the other persons? He calls them puffed up. He says, you are so full of yourself. You are so prideful, you are inflated like a balloon to its max, and you're about to pop. And so what's causing their pride in the puffed up? It's their knowledge. Notice what Paul says, all of us possess this knowledge. Well, what's the knowledge? It's in verse 4, we know, right? We know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. So stop. This is what they know. This is what they're telling one another. We know that there is only one God, and we know that idols are not real. And guess what? They're kind of right. Israel would confess what we call the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, he is what? One. So they, they, they would have known that verse, yes, he is one. And they would have known passages like Jeremiah. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. Psalm 115, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel and feet but do not walk and they cannot make a sound with their throats because they are dead, right? So this is their theology. Idols aren't real. They're made by humans' hands. They they can't walk. They can't talk. They can't breathe. They're nothing. So they knew that. But their knowledge is incomplete. Notice what Paul keeps on saying. There are so-called lowercase gods and there are so-called many lords, even though we know that all things exist for and through and by God. But you cannot discount the demonic. Now, turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 19 through 20, and you'll see where Paul is going. 
1 Corinthians 10, 19. What do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that idols is anything? He says, certainly not. What I do imply is that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to who? Demons. Now, you see what Paul is saying? He's saying, you're right. Idols don't exist. They're nothing. And yet, demons are real. And behind the idolatry, there is the demonic. And the demonic is real. And Satan is real. And what you're doing by exegeting and extracting certain scriptures that are true, you're actually missing the whole entirety of scripture. You see what they're doing? They're getting puffed up. And what did they do with their knowledge? They said, well, okay, well, we know because we can go to Jeremiah 10 and Deuteronomy 6 and Psalm 115. We know that idols don't exist. Check. And then we know that this meat has not been offered to anything. Check. And therefore it is clean. Check. And on top of this, we have liberty. Check. And on on top of this, food does not commend us to God. Check. On top of this, because our individual consciences don't accuse us to this matter. Check. Guess what? We're free to eat what we want, where we want, how we want, around whomever we want. We don't have to care about where they are. That's how they're living. And that is the quickest way to kill a church. If this is the way you decision make based on your limited knowledge and your own conscience and your own freedom and your own preferences, in five years, there will be no Redeemer Church. Why? Because the cross reminds us that God is reconciling a people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every past. Like, like that's kind of my past, but you got some stuff in your past too, right? And we're coming into fellowship with King Jesus. And if every one of us only decision made around our own preferences, our own likes, then guess what? We're going to hurt and destroy one another. But there's a new way to live. It's the way of love. Did you notice the contrast? This knowledge, it puffs you up. But love builds one another up. What Paul does in 1 Corinthians 8 is plant a seed of love that then blossoms into a full tree of love in 1 Corinthians 13. And do not make the mistake to think that 1 Corinthians 13 is not related to what's happening here. Listen to these words. If I speak in tongues of men but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and all faith, faith that will move mountains and have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give everything I have and give my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and love is kind and love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant and puffed up or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things and endures all things. So why is love so important to Paul? Because it was important to Jesus. Hours before he's about to be betrayed. Some of the last things that come from the mouth of our Messiah is as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He says, abide in my love. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another even as I love you. He says, greater love has no one than this that someone will lay down his life for his friends. What does love look like? It's more than a feeling. As the old folks say, love got some feet on it, which means it walks a certain way and it it talks a certain way. It's not just me getting inside of my feelings and, and feel mushy. Love comes with actions. And what Paul is saying is, Love looks a certain way. Love recognizes that knowledge isn't bad. It's good. But there is something better than simply knowing information. It's also knowing what you don't know. You're never an expert on everything. There are other believers that you might discredit who see things in scripture that you don't see. And if you insist on your own knowledge and disregard what they see from the same scripture, your own knowledge will puff you up. Love invites us to be curious. Love invites us to care and to listen And to sit down and reason with people to see what what they're reading from the same Bible that we're reading. Love says freedom is good. But freedom is much more about what you're free to do. The freedom that we have in Jesus is a freedom that frees us not to make use of our freedom. That's what Paul says to the one who was a slave, you're free in Jesus. And to the one who was free in Jesus, you're now Jesus' bondservant. Do you see what true freedom looks like? It looks like being free and being a bondage. Notice what Paul says, if me exercising my freedom to eat meat around other people causes my brother to stumble, I will never, ever in my life eat meat again. You, did you hear that? I'll stop buying it. I'll never taste protein from a steak anymore in my life. I'll wait to the new heavens and the new earth, right? I will forego this pleasure if it builds up my brother or sister. Conscience is a good gift, but love reminds us that all of our consciences are still in process. We are redeemed. Love tells us that 
our conscience matters, but so does the consciences of our brothers and sisters. And we don't just make public decisions and carry ourselves publicly around our own knowledge and our own freedom and our own consciences. Love says, let me consider their freedom and their knowledge and their consciences. Beloved, you may be free to partake of a nice glass of Pinot Noir and your conscience can be clear. You don't abuse it. But if you are with a brother or sister who's had a problem in the past with alcoholism, you also have the freedom to die when you go to dinner and to not offer it or serve it. You have the freedom to buy what you want and to wear what you want. But is that dress or those pants or that cut-off shirt the best thing to wear around your brother or sister? Do what you want to do in your own home. But when we step out in public, we're mindful of other brothers and sisters. You have the freedom to vote your conscience. The word Republican or Democrat or Libertarian, they're not in the scriptures. And you should use your wisdom and you should pray, but you don't have the right to show public rage when your candidate does not win. You can keep that private. You can admit that you don't know everything there is to know about either party. And you can bear with other people who read the same Bible and arrive at different conclusions. And you can remove the bumper sticker. You have the freedom to prefer things in church and the way churches ought to operate. And you also have the freedom to die to certain things for the sake of a greater unity. Do you know what this type of living does? It builds up, it protects, and it blesses other brothers and sisters from all sorts of backgrounds and preferences, and God will be praised. You know what Jesus says about this type of living? He says, when the world sees your love and your unity amidst your diversity, they see the transforming power of the gospel. And therefore, we are in Missions Month. And here's a one-liner I want you to think about. Missions does not begin with what you do out there to reach the non-believers Missions begins with, can you forbear with believers you worship next to? Do not think for a moment that if you can't die in here to other preferences of other believers, that you're going to be effective out there. What you're going to do out there is make little clones of yourself. When we learn how to love people and be patient with people and die, we are better suited to love and be patient with and die in the world around us. Three things to know, two ways to live, 
one source of power. Where do we get the power to die? How do we know that dying to smaller preferences can bring the life and blessing to many? It's because Jesus tells us. He says, love one another. Well, how how do you want us to love one another? He says, as I loved you and as the Father has loved me. Well, how did you love me? By laying down my life for you. I'm not even asking you, says Jesus, to go to a cross. I did that. I'm asking you to die to being right all the time. I'm asking you to die to your preferences some of the time. I'm asking you to lay down legitimate things that you could get for the sake of the other. And when the Messiah who lays down his rights to redeem us tells us go and love one another like that, It means that when the gospel begins to do its work in us, then we become more willing and more joyful and more ready to die to certain things. The problem isn't always the behavior. When we don't live like that, the problem is we're not understanding the gospel. And so we go back there and we sit in it with Jesus. And we look at Jesus and we ponder Jesus. And when we sit long enough, we see a Messiah who took joy in dying. And we leave that place and we walk into the world ready to die. I'll close with this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, make us like your son. He is beautiful and sacrificial and loving and kind. Lord, we repent for ways that we have been mean and haughty and prideful and indifferent. This should not be named among a people who has a Savior who is concerned with us and our well-being. Father, form us after the image of Jesus. May we be those who don't trip up or wound or cause others to stumble or destroy over small matters. There are big matters like Scripture and inerrancy and the gospel, and we die for those. But there are small things, Lord, that we need to die to. And so help us by your grace. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.